0: Welcome to Open Spaces from Wyoming. Public Radio News, I'm Bob Bass.
1: And I'm Melody Edwards. Coming up on the show, we'll find out what political parties in the state are doing to recruit women to the
2: legislature. Half of Wyoming is women. So when only 13% of the legislature is women, um, something's missing.
0: Governor Matt Mead explains why he's not asking for more budget cuts. I just think that uh,
3: my cuts, uh, along with legislative cuts, are about right. Some students in
1: Jackson are worried about the outcome of the presidential election, and we continue looking at the
0: reservation housing shortage.
4: It's hard to find a way out, hard to find that one or two
0: people who's going to help you out. Those stories and more are coming up on Open Spaces from Wyoming. Public Radio News.
1: Support for Open Spaces podcast comes from the Hobbs School of Environment and Natural Resources at the University of Wyoming. slash HAUB.
0: Welcome to Open Spaces. From Wyoming Public Radio News, I'm Bob Beck.
1: And I'm Melody Edwards. Emotions are running high following the 2016 presidential election. Educators in Jackson are helping their large number of Mexican students cope with emotions they may be encountering at home. Rebecca Huntington
5: has more. And we have to determine what's important. Was my wig... Really important? No. no. So do I think if I used my Earth and Space book that every single thing in that Earth and Space book should go in my report? No. Uh, probably not, right? What about?
6: Thomas Ralston is teaching third graders at Jackson's Coulter Elementary. He teaches in the dual language immersion program, where half the children speak Spanish at home and the other half English. The students alternate learning in both languages. He says when children start talking politics, They're often mirroring their parents.
5: Um, There was a lot of uneasiness. I think it's just a basic reflection of what you see around the country, Um, not necessarily because of who won or who lost, but when you have a large minority group uh, making up half of your classroom in an election like this, there was obviously a lot of fear. There's a lot of worst-case scenarios and and end-of-the-world-type feelings.
6: The fear was that some of them may be forced to leave due to Donald Trump's tough talk on immigration. Coulter Elementary serves almost 600 students, and about 37 percent of those students are Latino. Principal Bo Miller says that immediately after the election, some did break down, worried about what changes in immigration policy might mean for their families.
5: One example is a a child told their third grade teacher that they wouldn't be back after the weekend, and the teacher said, well, where are you going to go? And the child said, well, I'm I'm sure we have to move back to Mexico. Mm -hmm. You know, speaking with this childlike innocence, and of course the family was back on Monday, and we haven't seen a drop in enrollment.
6: Teacher Thomas Ralston says he's been dealing with his students' concerns by trying to teach them how government works.
5: We gave a really off-the-wall example, like the president wants to change uh, all lunches to chocolate chip cookies every day. The president doesn't have the power to go in and do that. We talked about the three branches of government and how the checks and balances work and things like that.
6: Ralston says coping with political uncertainty isn't unique to Jackson.
5: I think you see the same uneasiness here that you would probably see in places like Gillette with natural gas and coal, you know, when it looked like it was going to be a predominantly democratic election and those things were going to be shut down. I think there was a lot of those conversations that had to do with, you know, home finance and am I going to have a job and is now the time to get out of here just like you're having here because the election went the other way.
6: Andy says kids are modeling how their parents cope with those uncertainties. He suggests that parents watch what they say around their children.
5: Just be a positive role model and be supportive of your kids and if your kids ask questions, talk to them about it just like anything else.
6: School counselor Charlotte DePrisco agrees. Kids talk to each other, and I think that was what was kind of happening too, is that they would say, well, my parents said this, and and then another kid would say, I didn't know that, now I'm really worried. DePrisco says she talks through those concerns with children when parents or teachers ask her to help, so kids can calm their fears and get back to learning. Overall, principal Beau Miller says things have calmed down and he doesn't see visible signs of stress among students. More than anything he says, he's witnessed an outpouring of support.
5: I think many people have heard about incidents in K twelve schools across the nation where there's some bullying harassment towards minorities, let's say it's Muslim populations. We're decidedly not seeing that. We're seeing support among our Anglo families for our Latinos. You know, there's a concern by them for, for our community.
6: For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Rebecca Huntington in Jackson.
0: There's a housing crisis going on at the Wind River Indian Reservation in central Wyoming. For its growing population of 15,000 residents, there aren't nearly enough homes to go around and very little funding to build more. The problem has led to high rates of homelessness in Fremont County. But on rural reservations like Wind River, homelessness doesn't look much like it does in big cities. Well, I mean, Public Radio's Melody Edwards explains.
1: Last spring, when the rains came pouring through his roof, 85-year-old Hugh Ridgely moved out of his house and into his truck. Sitting behind his steering wheel, he points out the window at a ramshackle cabin under the cottonwoods.
7: See, this old house, is old uh, log house, my dad built that back in, I guess, uh, early 30s, 35, somewhere. And uh, he just used uh, ax and team horses. It was
1: his relative, Linnell Shakespeare, who lived nearby, who first realized what was going on.
8: So when I did, it was the evening time, and I pulled in, and he was sitting on his truck. And I gave him some food, and he just ate it real fast, and he was real hungry. And I see he got enough blankets? Because he just had a jacket over his legs. And I said, how come you sleeping in your truck? He said, my house flooded out. And I said, oh, man. When I left, I started crying. Hugh Ridgely is a
1: decorated Korean War veteran who fought in the Battle of Bunker Hill, one of only nine soldiers out of 250 who survived. But Shakespeare says...
8: It ain't just because he's a vet. He's an elder. He's He's one of the last that know our native language, the old style. God, he's 85 years old.
1: Shakespeare offered to let him live in a spare room at her house. He said, no. He says it's my home. He said, I'm not leaving it. She shows me the flood damage to his home.
4: This is where the mold, or the water was coming,
8: and it flooded this whole
1: thing. So just the roof just Mm -hmm. gave
8: out right here.
1: Yeah. So is this kind of mold in here? That's kind of what we're looking at. And it's all over. It's all over in there. Shakespeare tried to clean up the mold in his house herself, but soon realized she needed help. She turned to Cherokee Brown, a longtime veteran advocate on the reservation.
8: Every family on the reservation, I can tell you, has at least one veteran in their family, if not more. Every family.
1: But even so, for years, getting home loans through the Veterans Administration for repairs like Ridgely's has been impossible because of a legal technicality based on where his home is. The VA doesn't have a legal agreement to give these loans on the Wind River Reservation yet. Although they're in the final stages of completing that process, It was clear to Brown it wouldn't happen in time for winter. She says another option, through the Volunteers of America, offered to pay for him to move to town.
8: But since he's not willing to move from his home, which is on tribal land, into town, which why should he? This is his home. This is where his roots are. This is where his family was raised. He shouldn't have to move to have access to those dollars or to those those funds.
1: Since Ridgely won't move, the northern Arapahoe tribe paid for a travel trailer to install on his property. For over a week, Stanford and James St. Clair from the Tribal Employment Rights Office have been hooking it up.
4: This here is, we're tied into the sewer system. Hooked up electricity. Yep. Yeah, and then we put some water out there. We leveled the, the camper.
1: Veteran advocate Brown says veterans are humble and won't necessarily ask for this kind of help
8: thing is, there's so many of other veterans out there that need the same thing. They face the same challenges that he's facing right now.
1: Brown says there are 300 homeless families on the reservation right now. But like Ridgely, they aren't necessarily on the street. Here, people make room, squeezing in wherever they can. But it's a slippery slope, and sometimes they do end up sleeping in a vehicle or at a park. Since 2014, when the state hired a homelessness coordinator and began conducting point-in-time counts of homeless people, Fremont County has had some of the highest numbers. Last January, about 100 unsheltered homeless were counted
4: here. But that doesn't even count or include the individuals who stay from house to house.
1: That's homeless advocate Charles Aragon, the organizer of a recent conference on homelessness in Riverton. He says the reservation housing shortage creates a cycle that feeds on itself, especially when several families rely on only one or two vehicles and can't always make it to work or school. Aragon says that leads to depression, alcoholism, health problems.
4: And so they don't have any other option, either to go out onto the streets or some people have lived in their vehicles. It's hard to find a way out, hard to find some that one or two people who's going to help you out.
1: For Korean vet Hugh Ridgely, though, he's found a few people to keep him from sleeping in his truck this winter. But with these sub-zero temperatures, the solution isn't a permanent one for an elderly man. The question is whether the VA will find a way through the red tape to help him rebuild his family home in time for next winter. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Melody Edwards.
0: When we come back, a former Wyoming public radio reporter talks about training cowboys to work in Russia. This is Open Spaces.
1: Welcome back to Open Spaces. I'm Melody Edwards.
0: And I'm Bob Beck. In Wyoming, many ranching families have been raising beef cattle for generations. Cowboys are born here and raised learning the trade. But Russia across the ocean has never had a beef industry. In an effort to limit food imports like beef and build up food security, the government there has been generously helping companies with loans and subsidies to establish beef operations. The companies have set up ranches and imported beef cows and technology. But one thing they could not import was the workforce, the cowboy Irina Zhurov takes us to a Russian rodeo where fledging Russian cowboys are trying to prove that producing beef domestically is possible.
9: I'm on a farm in Brantz, about 300 miles southwest of Moscow. Everything on this farm looks brand new, because it is. The farm is just a year old, and the tractors, the administrative buildings, the gravel work roads, the fencing, somehow even the cows themselves sparkle. As far as rodeos go, everything here is similar to an American rodeo, except a little different. The cowboys enter the arena to patriotic songs, just like in the U.S., But here, one song is about how America should return Alaska to Russia. Another is about Russia's untapped mightiness. Give me a horse and a sword. No swords here, but plenty of horses and tons of people who've come to watch. They've brought signs and they cheer for their teams as they struggle to rope steers in the arena. Watching the proceedings is Sean Weeks. He says in the U.S., rodeo started as friendly competition between ranches.
7: Well, my cowboys are better than your cowboys. My horses are better than your horses. And so it kind of was the same idea here.
9: Except here, one company owns all the competing farms, Miratorg. Weeks is one of a handful of American contractors currently working on Miratorg Farms. He's like the most cowboy cowboy I've ever met.
7: I'm actually a fourth-generation cowboy. That's my family history.
9: As we talk, his horse chews hay nearby, and he throws a rope around a dummy bull, casually practicing his lasso skills.
7: I grew up doing this, you know. A rope was actually my first
9: toy. Before he reached his teen years, he was putting in hours as a ranch hand. He's got a great big mustache and wears western boots, a hat, and a tucked-in button-up shirt. When Miratorg hired him two years ago, he carried on his saddle, made by his dad, on the flight over. Miratorg started acquiring land in 2010, most of it fallow fields abandoned when the Soviet Union fell apart. Shortly after, Miratorg started populating that land with thousands of cows, flown or shipped in from places like the U.S. In the U.S., it took more than 100 years of breeding to make animals specifically for beef. Russia has only had dairy cows which don't make good meat. By bringing in fine-tuned genetics, the Russians skipped a huge step in building up a herd.
7: I've never seen anything grow this fast ever. And uh, sometimes it uh, kind of sets me back a little bit like, whoa, let's slow this train down a little bit, but this is their you know this is their program and this is what they want, so I just try to help them the best I can.
9: By copying the structure of Western beef operations, Miratorg is single-handedly trying to create an American-style beef industry, but in a very condensed time period. It now has about 400,000 cows, the largest herd in the world. The company has had to build fences in a country without any to train veterinarians, and to also import everything from horses and grass seed to tractors. But... The hardest part of managing this immense operation is not the science or the planning. It's finding workers. Cowboys. And that's where Weeks comes in. His job is teaching locals to cowboy. The new hires, mostly young men from nearby villages, have no experience. Most of them have only seen cowboys in black and white movies.
7: The difference is they're starting out from scratch. Uh, There's only a handful of us here to try to teach all these people how to do this.
9: Miratorg now employs 1,000 Russian cowboys. They call them operators, though. Yep, operators. They've managed to make cowboys sound bureaucratic. Week says it's been hard translating cowboy work ethic and skills to the operators. For example, last summer he got a call asking him to come help out in a herding emergency.
7: And they said, we need you to come and move these steers because we tried to move them and it was a a bad deal.
9: So he gets there and starts rounding up the 600 steers and everything seems to be going just fine.
7: And I thought, man, I just don't see what the problem is other than maybe they got going a little fast yesterday. and...
9: And then he approaches the gate and the animals become nervous.
7: All of a sudden I hear this chi-ching, ching -ching," and I, what in the world? And I turn around trying to find this sound. Here comes two guys riding over the hill behind us on bicycles with the little uh, handlebar bells on them. They thought they were going to help us move these steers with these bicycles.
9: These particular operators wouldn't ride horses, so they tried using bikes to herd the cows.
7: You know, I hate to admit it, but if they learned how to do things right, they could do it. But I'm not going to tell him that. (laughs) I want cowboys.
9: (laughs) If you're going to replicate the beef system, you might as well get all the parts right, he says. And what's a proper cowboy that can't show off at a rodeo? The announcer reviews scores for the teams, and Weeks looks out at his operators, Uh, steely-eyed.
7: They can do better than that, and they know it, and I know it, too.
9: I go under the grounds. I find steak cooking demonstrations, information on how the farm works, cows to pet. It's like one big advertisement for beef. In the U.S., a steak starts with a calf that spends about a year on pasture, proceeds to a feedlot, then a processing facility, then a store or restaurant. Each step is its own industry with myriad players. Because none of that has existed in Russia... Miratorg encompasses all of those sectors under one giant roof and has had to build them up along with the ranches. Hence the cooking demos. They kind of have to train steak eaters, too. Back in the arena, a team called Mlin rides out to a relatively toned-down folk song. People in the stands chant to encourage them. It takes an operator named Yevgeny Landyk several tries, but he finally ropes the steer. He looked nervous angling up to the calf, but afterwards, he says he wasn't.
4: The Americans taught us that we have to take it just like a work. So that's what I did. I just went out as if to work and did my job and left. That's all. Nothing to worry about. You just have to show them how you work in the field.
9: He's one of Miratorg's up-and-coming operators, young, quiet, serious. He's wearing a floral silk kerchief around his neck. The company gave the operators kerchiefs with traditional Russian designs on them for the rodeo. They're a Russian take on the silk bandanas American cowboys wear, just like the operators are the Russians' take on cowboys.
4: Russian cowboys are impatient. They got uncontrollable passion. Once a Russian cowboy gets impatient, there is nothing to stop him. That's how we are. The Russians are like, hurry, hurry, faster. I'll get him first. Come on, come on.
9: Landy gets back on his horse for the next event. I know he's not talking about Miratorg's business plan, but I can't help but draw a parallel as he talks. Hurry, hurry, faster, faster. In a kind of throwback to the Soviets' penchant for ambitious plans, Miratorg's proposal calls for doubling the number of their farms and cows. It's a big investment, and they haven't turned a profit yet. They started selling meat two years ago. Beef doesn't sell that well, at least in part because it's so expensive in Russia. Perhaps measuring success instead starts with a man named Sergei Shilin. He's the company's most convincing operator. (laughs)
4: <laughs> I try. I try to approximate the American cowboy.
9: Schillen has on a hat given to him by an American when he caught his first steer by the hind legs. Another American gifted him the boots he's wearing for working well together. He's from a nearby village and used to work at a dairy operation, which fell apart. He says he thought he knew cows, but his first day at Miratorg as an operator was difficult.
4: Because <laughs> they gave Right away, they give me a horse. It was an American horse. Uh, I couldn't control the same way as the Russian horses. Uh, not knowing how to work with them, I got two bulls stressed out, and we needed to transfer them section to section. The bulls came at me. It was hard. His wife made him
9: go back the next day, and he progressed quickly from there. After two years as an operator... He took a job as a trainer. Now he teaches riding and roping skills at a recently opened Cowboy Academy. Sounds official, right? A whole academy to train operators because they're hiring so many, so fast, and it's all just so, so new. Shillin, of course, loves it.
4: For me, this is becoming a lifestyle. At the current time, this Cowboy work is real lifestyle. I cherish it, God willing them. My son grows up, and I want him to be a Russian cowboy, too. He's four months old right now. In the near future, I want him to be a cowboy as well.
9: The rodeo is winding down. In the arena, the participants receive their prizes, about $100 to buy Western wear. That might be a little hard because there's nowhere locally to buy it. And then... There's one more surprise. There's parachutists coming down. Parachutists, who the DJs call aerial cowboys, float down into the arena with Russian flags and Muratorg flags. The foreigners are in awe. That was a little bit
4: close. (laughs) That was a little close.
9: (laughs) All this for some stakes. But of course, the stakes are so much more than that, a symbol of success of Russia's ability to take care of its own. So how are the steaks, anyway? Shilin says he doesn't know.
4: To tell you the truth, I haven't ever tried the steak yet. I have never tried the meat.
9: Why not, I ask?
5: To
4: tell you the truth, I just haven't had a chance, and especially the marble steaks for me, for now, it's too expensive, and I can afford to buy a kilo of this meat. I think in the future, I will try it with my family.
9: So, for now, a Russian cowboy is also one who doesn't eat steak. Yeah.
0: story comes to us from a health and science show called The Pulse from WHYY in Philadelphia. Irina Jorov reported it as part of UC Berkeley's 11th Hour Food and Farming Journalism Fellowship.
1: Coming up on the show, Wyoming has limited numbers of women in the legislature, and there's no effort in the state's majority party to do much about that. This is Open Spaces.
0: This is Open Spaces. From Wyoming Public Radio News, I'm Bob Beck.
1: And I'm Melody Edwards. When the Wyoming legislature convenes in January, it will see even fewer women in its ranks than it did before. Wyoming already had the lowest percentage of female legislators of any state in the country. In the last story in the Women Run the West series, Wyoming Public Radio's Caroline Ballard reports part of the problem still lies in recruitment.
10: If you were to walk into the Cheyenne office of Wyoming's Congresswoman, Cynthia Lummis, you might run into one of her three staffers, two of whom are women, or Cynthia Lummis herself. She replaced U.S. Representative Barbara Cuban, who was elected to be Wyoming's first female member of Congress in the
2: 1990s. Lummis says Barbara Cuban broke a barrier when she won. So when I then ran subsequently, uh, Wyoming was accustomed to um, having a woman in that position, so uh, I, I didn't need to break that ground. I simply had to prove myself as, as worthy of the position.
10: With the election of Liz Cheney, women have had a hold on the U.S. House seat. But the number of women in the Wyoming legislature has been dropping. Wyoming is last in the country when it comes to the
2: percentage of women in its legislature. Lemus says that's a problem. Half of Wyoming is women. So when only 13% of the legislature is women, um, something's missing. And come January, that
10: number will continue to go down to just 11%. But why are the numbers so low? There are a variety of possible explanations. For example, women tend to be caregivers, and Wyoming has a citizen legislature, which requires lots of time and resources. Women also have smaller financial networks upon which to draw. One of the biggest problems in getting women into office, though, is just recruiting them in the first place. Wyoming Democrats made that a focus this year. I absolutely specifically look for women to run for office. That's Amy Van Cleve, the executive director for Wyoming's Democratic Party. She notes 27 of the 37 women who ran this year were Democrats, and says finding women to run for office is critical. Our current senator, uh, Enzi, is very fond of saying, if you're not at the table, you're on the menu, and I absolutely believe that that's true for the women of Wyoming. Despite those efforts, a total of only 10 women were elected to the legislature this year, and just four of those were Democrats. While Democrats were busy recruiting women, Republicans weren't. Matt Michaeli, chairman for the Wyoming Republican Party, says they don't have a specific plan for recruiting women, He says they leave it up to county leaders to recruit people. So I asked Tammy Hooper, the state committee woman for the Albany County Republicans, about her county's recruitment strategy. Have you, in the Albany County Republicans, made any effort to specifically recruit women?
1: Um, No, uh, we haven't, (laughs) that I'm aware of. Hooper
10: says mostly people approach the Republican Party if they're interested in running, so she doesn't do a lot of recruiting. But when she does reach out, she doesn't look at gender.
1: You know, what I I look for in a candidate is who's going to be the best candidate, regardless of their gender.
10: Three women were elected to the Wyoming Senate this year, and two of them are Republicans. Michael I. says he encouraged one of them, Afi Ellis, to think about running.
0: You know, it's not that she's a woman or that she's a man or anything. It's just somebody that I think um, is going to be a talented and and great Senator,
10: But U.S. Representative Cynthia Lummis argues recruiting women is important for both parties.
2: I I think that political parties uh, need to reach out to women, especially when they see a woman who's very involved in her community, uh, very smart, able to articulate issues, care about the people that they would be representing and help them. Republican
10: Ruth Ann Petroff is a current legislator who's stepping down after serving in the Wyoming House for five years. She agrees there should be more women in the legislature.
2: I've struggled with that in the past. Is it really important? And I guess I would just go to say if, you know, if everyone in the legislature were over 65 years of age or everyone were under 35 years of age, we all have such different perspectives on life that A diverse group of people is essential to making good decisions for our future.
10: And research shows women have to be recruited. Katie Ziegler works for the National Conference of State Legislatures. There's a difference there, and the research has proved that, that looking at men and women with equal professional backgrounds, equal qualifications, women need to be asked to run, and then they also don't see themselves as qualified to take on a political campaign. But men do and so big decisions will lie in the hands of the overwhelmingly male legislature this session. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Caroline Ballard.
0: This story is part of the series Women Run the West, a public radio collaboration exploring the role of women in Western politics. You can hear more stories at womenrunthewest.org. Joining us now to talk more about the series are the two reporters who spearheaded this collaboration. Caroline Ballard, of course, of Wyoming Public Radio, and Jennifer Pemberton, formerly of Utah Public Radio and currently working for KTOO, in Juneau, Alaska. Uh, Caroline, how did Women Run the West come about?
10: Well, you know, it's funny, Bob. About a year ago, our general manager here at Wyoming Public Radio, Christina Kuzmich, asked if I would lead a panel on the number of women in Wyoming's legislature. Wyoming had just sunk to 50th in the country, um, and she was working on this as a part of Leadership Wyoming. So I started doing some research and uh, preparing for the panel, which was last February,
8: and uh, kind of had an, an interesting crossover on Twitter.
0: Now, Jennifer, how did this all come about for you then?
8: Yeah, so I had been um, looking at the low numbers of women in the Utah State Legislature, and I had been sort of following... Um, Waiting for that announcement of the the rankings to come out. It's kind of a big deal when you're when this is your beat. And so the rankings came out and Utah was like 43rd in the nation, um, which wasn't that bad, <laughs> not as bad as Wyoming. And I actually saw Caroline tweet about that panel and sort of saying, "Hey, we're number fifty. And so I reached out and said, "Hey, I'm working on this too. Maybe we could collaborate. And she loved that idea. And we actually applied to um, this NPR storytelling workshop back in D.C. And so we spent uh, a couple of days at NPR headquarters in D.C. working on this program together. And then we spent uh, the better part of the summer and the fall doing our reporting.
0: So, Jennifer, your initial question going into the project was basically why are there so few elected women in western states like Wyoming and Utah? Do you now feel like you can answer that?
8: I really wish we wouldn't have picked such a hard question um, because, <laughs> <laughs> because yes and no. Um, I mean, the reason that always came up before I really started digging into this topic is that, you know, duh, Utah, like Mormons. And I always kind of bristled at how simplistic that was because, yes, like the Mormons do have an influence on the culture, obviously, but Utah actually used to have a much better showing of women in state-elected positions, and the state has always been Mormon, so obviously that's not the whole story. Um, I learned about some other factors like Utah's caucus and convention system that really seems to make it hard for minority candidates of any kind to get elected, so I learned that there are more factors than I ever thought that there were. Um, I don't feel like I can clearly answer the question, why are there so few? Um, It's still a problem.
0: Uh, why are there so few in Wyoming, Caroline?
10: Right. I think it's it's similar to what Jennifer said. You know, you can answer parts of it. And it, it really does tend to be not quite so much the obvious answers that, you know, you kind of receive when you first look at this. Like, well, women are full-time caregivers. Women are full-time caregivers. They have home obligations. Um, there seem to be about a hundred reasons women are less represented in Wyoming, including how Wyoming districts operate. Uh, we have a citizen legislature, makes it very hard to leave work for several months at a time. Wyoming's capital is kind of in the corner of the state, very far from other places. Um, and you know, I think each state has something unique like this, um, but the across the board consistent thing is that there isn't gender parity almost anywhere in the United States. So there has to be common ground somewhere. And I think we found that that kind of comes down to how women see themselves. Typically, they see themselves as less qualified and how they're recruited for office, which in many cases, they are not recruited for office. So I think there's more reporting to do now in where women get these kinds of messages that they aren't qualified and uh, who's doing what to fix that. Can
0: I ask you both a question? Uh, Caroline, starting with you, why is it important that we have more women?
10: Cynthia Lummis actually put it uh, really great, and uh, she actually mentioned this in the, in the piece that we just heard, that half of Wyoming is women. And if there's only 13% women in the legislature, there are certainly voices that are not being heard and perspectives. And the more perspectives you have from different people in a state— um, the better it is for a representative democracy. Um, you know, I think representatives can try their best to be a voice for everyone in their community. But until you have a personal perspective and a personal stake in the legislature, I think a lot of those um, those
8: issues are going to go
0: unheard. Jennifer?
8: Yeah, and I, I don't think that we're being too literal when we use the word representative to like mean that. To, you know, to assume that representatives, elected officials should represent the people. Um, and of course, that can't be like a perfect formula. But, um, you know, 15 percent or 13 percent um, in the cases of Utah and Wyoming and our uh, just in our house legislature or in our state legislatures. Um, that's not representative. There are in Utah, at least there are more women than men in the state. And so, you know, we'll probably never have parody. Um, It might not ever be perfect, but we have to try to get closer to actually having our elected officials look more like the people that they're representing.
0: Jennifer Pemberton, formerly of Utah Public Radio, currently talking to us from KTOO in Juneau, Alaska, and Caroline Ballard, of course, of Wyoming Public Radio. Thanks to both of you.
8: Thanks, Bob. Thanks, Bob.
1: In a minute, Governor Matt Mead joins us to discuss his proposed budget. This is Open Spaces. Welcome back to Open Spaces. I'm Melody Edwards.
0: And I'm Bob Beck. After several months of budget cuts, it was a surprise to some that the governor did not propose any more reductions in his supplemental budget. He will present that budget to the legislature's Joint Appropriations Committee on Monday. Prior to that meeting, the governor has agreed to join us to discuss his budget strategy. Let's talk a little bit about your budget. You released it just the other day. Looking at it, it it didn't call for any more cuts. That that might have caught some people by surprise. Would you explain why you did it that way? Yeah, well,
3: I, I, I may have caught some by surprise by no additional cuts, and I think I caught some by surprise uh, by not adding a lot more back in. Uh, When the legislature finished their session last year, they made about uh, $67 million in cuts. Uh, By the time May-June rolled around uh, this summer, uh, the Craig's uh, outlook got a lot worse, and as a result of that I had to take uh, significant action and make about uh, $250 million in cuts. As I came in and prepared my budget that I presented December 1st, I believe the $250 million, along with the cuts that the legislature had made, put us in about uh, the right spot. I'm not cutting for just cutting sake. I want to uh, make sure that we provide the services to the state of Wyoming, whether it is um, for roads, uh, for health care, for our, uh, community colleges, University of Wyoming. And with that 250 that I cut um, and with the things I have in my budget, that'll get us uh, to next year and uh, and uh, to the end of the biennium, rather, and put us in, in decent shape at the start of the biennium. Uh, in fact, we would anticipate we'd be, you know, 20 maybe $30 million to good starting next biennium. And so <clears throat> while we still have a significant revenue shortage relative to where we've been in the past, I just think that uh, my cuts, uh, along with legislative cuts, are are about right. Where we are today uh, with this budget, um, if you compare it to six years ago, um, you know we we are down, and I think we needed to do that. We needed to respond to a situation uh, where we have falling revenue, and my budget also, you know, other than uh, contingency appropriations in case something happens at the pen or in case we can't cover Title Twenty Five uh, needs. Uh, or to fill back up a savings account, does not take any money out of the uh, uh, rainy day fund.
0: There were people that wondered if you wouldn't ask to add more, more money back into a couple of areas. You had mentioned at one point this fall maybe corrections took a big cut uh of course there's been a lot of people that have circled the department of health some even wondered if you might kick some more money back into the university of wyoming did you give that some consideration and you know why didn't you do some of that when i asked for cuts in june the
3: department of corrections provided me their recommended cuts and i actually uh, backed off those somewhat i thought the cuts that they had were too deep during the time after July 1st we were uh, continuing to stay in in touch with the Department of Corrections seeing where they were there was a time where I thought I would need to put some money back in but as things uh, sorted out it looked like they were okay I will say that I we're still watching Department of Corrections very closely to make sure because it's a very tight budget for them with regard to you know the Department of Health um, they really took uh, significant cuts. It wasn't just the $90 million that I cut from their agency alone. It was the $40, uh, I think it was about $48 million that, uh, of federal cuts that went with that because of the matching process. And so significant cut there. We didn't see any opportunity to add money back in there that uh, would be, um, I, I just didn't see a way to get that done. I did, as you note, uh, as I know you know, uh, add some money back in for um, the University of Wyoming for their enrollment program. I think that's an important program. I think the trustees and President Nichols have a very good vision on upping the uh, enrollment at the University of Wyoming. Uh, I did put in some money for our community colleges for workforce development. We put a little money back in. insignificant as a percentage, but important symbolically, including the science initiative at the University of Wyoming, which I think is is a wonderful thing that uh, we have been working on. I think it's important for STEM education, for our young people, our state, and the future of our state to continue to press on uh, STEM education. So there was a little bit put back in, but uh, as I said, it, it's a small amount relative to the overall budget.
0: One uh, last thing, About the budget, and and we talked a lot about education during your press conference uh, uh, on the budget. And that's certainly an area of concern. You want to form a committee, uh, get some folks together, looking at ways to trim or at least uh, take a look at that funding model. Are are you convinced that there's maybe a little too much money in that? Well, I—
3: I'm not prepared to say that. What I am prepared to say is that we just don't have the money to fund it as it is. And I actually asked the legislature last year to to put together a committee to look at this because it's not getting any better. And, you know, the numbers are significant. Uh, you know, the estimate in six years will be a billion five in the whole. The earlier you can get to work on what I think will be submitted cuts as well as a very serious discussion on just revenue – um, the better we the earlier we get started on that uh, the better and so uh, it's um, uh, I think there uh, I suspect there will be some amount of cuts that happen at this session in education and there will be disagreement whether that money uh, may be needed or not I suspect by some but wherever you end up on that discussion it's still a revenue situation we just don't have the revenue to support it at the levels that uh, we have in the past and the legislature, I will say, has been very supportive of education, not only on uh, the funding for operations, but also Cap- Capcom, uh, building uh, schools. But we just can't continue on that trajectory because the revenue is not there. And so uh, while there will be disagreement with whatever cuts are made, whether they are, are appropriate or, or uh, excessive, Uh, you know, revenue was going to be the the driving discussion on that. We just do not have the revenue to support it at the level that we have in the past.
0: You have been on record in recent months opposing tax increases. Uh, I think you were asked about it in September when the Revenue Committee was talking about some of these things. Have you changed your mind as you've looked at the financial picture, not only involving education, but maybe our, our revenue challenges that we have right now?
3: Well, I think, you know, I just on the education side, I mean, I, I don't think anybody's in favor, and, I, and I'm still not in favor, but I, I think that if we're going to put together a legislative-driven task force, which I do think is appropriate, I don't want to predetermine that here's what's on the table and here's what's off the table. I think they need to look at everything, including not only... Cuts, but I also think it's very important that they look at the revenue side, and and you know whether it's mills or something else. I think that is a fair discussion to have, as much as distasteful as it is to, I'm sure most of us. Um, I think that's a a very important for discussion for them to have, and I think that you know I I I want to challenge myself, the executive branch and legislative branch to look at the entire picture and we also need you know our, our our teachers uh school districts and parents involved in this discussion because i don't think it's sufficient just to say that our supreme court said this and and campbell case one and campbell case two uh, uh are the end of the story we we need participation in the solution because if the legislature uh just makes these cuts without full participation and information from our school districts, we're we're not gonna do it in the best way possible. So I think that's the other advantage to making sure our school districts are very involved. And if cuts are made, they help us direct uh, the places where that should pl- uh, should take place, um, the least disruptive w- in the least disruptive way possible.
0: In the final couple of minutes we have, I want to quickly throw a couple of questions your way and just get your thoughts on them. We're a lot of discussion on this federal lands back in state hands. Uh, obviously, you have a little family history there, uh, maybe the opposite way. But I'm I'm curious your thoughts about those proposals.
3: I think that, you know, the the people that put that together, they were trying to put together something that showed if that happens that, uh, you know, there will be things will maintain the same way. They weren't trying to get the land sold or transferred. But as you may remember, this is uh, an issue that came up uh, probably four years ago, maybe five years ago. I've had, you know, two attorney generals look at, you know, the legal, uh, you know, if that's even legally possible for Wyoming to get those lands back. They have both indicated that that is, is not going to happen. So that's sort of on the legal side. On the policy side, you know, I re- revert back to 2012 where we paid $45 million fighting fires on the state side. The feds paid another $45 million. You know, there's a cost associated with managing those lands properly. That would have been a $90 million fire season for us. And I recognize, you know, as I'm trying to diversify our economy and I look at the outdoor recreation opportunities in the state, hunting and fishing, that uh, public lands are important to a lot of people in Wyoming to have access to that quality of life that's provided for them. And so First, I think there's a a big legal question, and second, a policy question. And what I have said is worthwhile is, you know, if you wanted to do this on a pilot project with a section of land and do baseline studies and see where the habitat is, um, you know, the wildlife, the water, um, air, soil, and give the state 10 or 20 years to manage it and see if we could do it better uh, for less money and have more multiple use, um, you
0: know, that's worth looking at. Last question for you. Do you think the Trump administration is going to bring back energy prices?
3: Well, I uh, I think they're going to bring back energy. Uh, I think they're going to have more robust energy energy production. And with that, uh, you know, the more you produce, that can have a, an uh, adverse effect on prices. But I think what will help on prices is that um, – by having more people involved uh, and with predictability that I think uh, the Trump administration will bring to uh, mineral development, I think it'll help the industry as a whole. The you know it's we still recognize uh, the market. I mean, because of great technology, gas uh, has uh, natural gas prices have put a pressure on coal. Um, and there's a lot of natural gas out there great to, due to the great innovation of uh, our American producers. So I'm hopeful that uh, the Trump administration has what I think is important to have a more sensical approach to the permitting, that they can get it done in, uh, in a shorter order.
0: We never have enough time. Governor Matt Mead, always a pleasure. Thank you.
3: Bob, thanks so much for your time. I appreciate the opportunity.
1: Thank you for listening to Open Spaces. If you missed a segment or want to hear the entire show again, you can find it on our website at wyomingpublicmedia.org.
0: You can also sign up for our podcast and link to past shows on that website or on iTunes. And a Raider is our web editor.
1: We always invite ideas for future stories or interviews. Make sure you give us plenty of notice.
0: For daily news, make sure you're following all of our reporters on Twitter you can follow me under the name Butter Bob. Open Spaces is a production of Wyoming Public Radio News.